Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that I wrote in for a couple of years. I haven't done much with it in the last year since I went to the podcast format, but you might find some interesting stuff there. You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please do so by email. And my email address is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is May 3rd, 2022. And today we're going to talk about values. So much of this podcast has been built around the values that the various stakeholders in big time college sports claim to hold and the values that they actually pursue. And that values dissonance has just become almost unbearable in 2022. And in this podcast, I have used Ronald Smith's 1988 book, Sports and Freedom, to describe that dissonance. He had a framework that he called the Amateur Professional Dilemma. And it's a framework that really has been the bedrock of the values system in big-time college sports, really up until the summer of 2021. But the way that Smith described that values dissonance, he said that the universities were engaged in a form of hypocrisy. And he meant that in the literal meaning of hypocrisy. And the the Greek word hypocrisy means play acting. They were play acting to the outside world to profess their amateur virtue because they were so embarrassed about how they were compromising their values behind the scenes. So you had the institutions in higher education, really propagandizing their false value system that was based on amateurism and the scholar-athlete and the collegiate model and education, while at the same time they were insisting on the most commercialized, professionalized product that the market could bear. And that has played out in various iterations. And I would say one of the most extreme iterations was the work of the Knight Commission in the late 80s, early 90s when uh, university presidents were pounding their chests in a very public way to make the case for academic integrity and the values of higher education and the need to align the business of big-time sports with the values of higher education. And I think history has proven pretty clearly that not only did that movement of presidential control and leadership fail to pull back on commercialization and professionalization in uh, football and men's basketball, the two big money sports, but these presidents actually behind the scenes pressed the gas on that commercialization and professionalization. And that was put really into a working operating principle of the business of big time college sports by Miles Brand in his formulation of the collegiate model, which demanded the maximum exploitation of revenue in football and men's basketball. And then you take that money and send it down to participation opportunities. And I've talked quite a bit about that and the regressive race-based transfer of wealth that results from that framework. Yet the university presidents and the institutions and the NCAA and all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries 
companies were very successful at using this amateur professional dilemma to mask what was really going on behind the scenes. And that's in large part because really since the 1950s, and I would say up until 2006, which was the beginning wave of lawsuits brought by athletes challenging compensation limits, the NCAA, the institutions, the major conferences, they had a monopoly over the values market. And in their way of thinking, values were a commodity. But the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the decision makers and the university presidents and chancellors and conference commissioners and all of the in-system beneficiaries of this massive marketplace, they genuinely believed that their professions of amateur virtue were a valuable commodity. And that expressed itself heading into this really important turning point in the values market and the values debate. And that was the first antitrust suit by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And that was in 2006 in this white case. And that was based solely on the cost of attendance stipend or scholarship. And the athletes were saying that a scholarship set below the full cost of attendance violated antitrust uh, laws. And NCAA settled that case. And then we had O'Bannon, which was a name, image, and likeness case. Then we had Austin, which was originally a case that was going to take down all amateurism-based compensation limits, but it was whittled down and watered down to these education benefits. But in all of those lawsuits, the NCAA and the Power Five conferences defended the amateurism-based compensation limits on the grounds that if athletes were paid and the concept of amateurism was at risk, then consumers would flee. That was their initial argument, that paying athletes would destroy college sports because consumers wouldn't watch athletes and teams compete that had paid professionals on their roster. And as that antitrust litigation matured through White, through O'Bannon, and then into Austin, it became increasingly clear that that whole argument was a, a false argument. Consumers didn't flee when compensation limits were relaxed, and the college sports market didn't come to a fatal collapse. In fact, the opposite occurred. The evidence in those cases showed that regardless of whether these compensation limits were relaxed, the overall marketplace of big-time college sports was increasing and increasing at a breathtaking pace, even with COVID interrupting it. The market has picked up after COVID. The college sports market is rocking along and it's going to hit warp speed with this new sports betting market that I'm going to talk about as well. And I, I think the Austin decision, the unanimous Supreme Court decision in March of 2021, was the nail in the coffin on this false value that amateurism in and of itself was necessary to define the product because consumers would either flee or they would be denied a consumer choice between amateur and professional sports. And the NCAA and Power Five just uh, steadfastly stuck to that argument, in large part because that's how the uh, U.S. Supreme Court suggested the market really operated in some offhand dicta language in its 1984 Board of Regents decision, which the Austin court said was uh, meaningless. It was worthless. And the NCAA's reliance on that dicta, which it had gotten a lot of mileage and deference from was over. That was done. So on the backside of 
Austin, this the fundamental belief system of the NCAA in terms of its values as commodities was turned upside down and inside out. And as public opinion had shifted against the NCAA and against its propagandization of the principle of amateurism, you started to see the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries really struggling to figure out how they were going to define themselves at the values level. And in many ways, what has resulted in what, what I see going on now that I'm going to talk about in this episode is that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries uh, are taking amateurism and, and moving it into the closet. And they are now externalizing values that make it appear as if they are progressive and in favor of some form of payment to athletes. And that's ex expressing itself in a lot of the propaganda that you're getting. It's expressing itself in s some of the things that are coming out of this transformation committee that I'm going to talk about as well. And it's expressing itself in the, the language that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are using or not using. You don't hear the word amateurism. You don't get the Norman Rockwell speeches anymore about the revered tradition of amateurism. That's done. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a Marist poll in this episode that came out in February, just before the March Madness tournament. And it asked some questions on these hot button issues. And the central question was whether Americans believe that athletes should be paid by their university. Should they be able to benefit from outright pay for play? The results there were really interesting and suggest to me that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the Power Five now, and th this work of the Transformation Committee is informed by these two value systems that are out in the um, uh, American consciousness now. One with younger Americans who are far more progressive and who think amateurism is just a fraud. And then you have an older demographic that aligns more with NCAA's traditional views of amateurism, and I think is what you would find in the Senate, for example, I'm going to talk about that too, that is still very much receptive to the Norman Rockwell value system. And so the net effect of this is that the amateur professional dilemma has been turned on its head. And now the NCAA, the Power Five, and all the beneficiaries of this dysfunctional marketplace aren't professing amateurism to the outside world. Amateurism has been driven underground and it operates now in a black market that's being back-channeled to the Senate through NCAA and Power Five lobbyists because that's one of the few remaining audiences where that Norman Rockwell kind of argument still has value. It's political value. It's not economic value, but it has value. But you don't hear the NCAA and Power Five talking about amateurism to the general public. That's not a winning strategy right now because that principle has no market value and you have younger viewers, younger fans, potential fans. And you know, the NCAA and Power Five are all about engagement. The fan engagement was the, the talking point and the big buzzword around the March Madness tournament this year and, and the Final Four. And, and that's been the buzzword around the sports betting interests and, and their encroachment into the college sports marketplace. It's about fan engagement. It's about getting asses in the seats. It's about getting people to buy your product and subscribe to your service. And they will do anything in their power to try to capture the younger fans. That's the lifeblood of this industry. And you can't do that now by talking about 
amateurism. You will lose those fans. This is just a, a really interesting time at the values level. And I think that's expressing itself on both sides of the fence. So you have the uh, Transformation Committee and the Power Five and their new powers under this NCAA constitutional makeover, trying to uh, figure out how they're going to articulate their values. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the discussions that have gone on in this Transformation Committee and how cagey they have been in articulating values. And I think think they're in the same dilemma that the athletes' rights movement is because, you know, this California bill that I've been talking about, this revenue sharing bill, really presses the envelope in terms of where external regulators are willing to go in this fundamental relationship between the laborers in big-time college sports, the people who, whose labors underwrite the entire industry and whose labors provide the value in the product, and that is big-time football and basketball players. How far are we willing to go to protect their interests? And I think that is a complicated analysis as well, because you have people who understand that there are civil rights implications there. But when it comes to actually paying these guys, there are some normative barriers. So Ramogi Huma, who is the head of the National College Players Association and who has been a proponent of this bill in California and was involved in putting it together, he's made comments that the athletes' rights movement is using a kitchen sink approach. And I would put it differently. I think this is a classic case of throwing stuff on the wall throwing different values and different options and different pathways on the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think the same thing is happening with the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And I think in this bizarre environment, we just don't know yet what's going to stick. But I will say this, with the uncertainty on both sides of the fence here, the athlete's rights side and then the in-system stakeholder beneficiary side, you have to remember that the athlete's rights movement is very disorganized. It has powerful arguments, but it is a disorganized movement and doesn't have nearly the power base or the resources that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have, who include some of the most powerful institutions of power in American history. So you have the in-system stakeholder beneficiary trying to manage this value struggle, but they are much better positioned to navigate that uncertainty and to try to get their way. That's precisely what they're doing in Congress behind the scenes in this kind of upside down, this inverted amateur professional dilemma that they're working now. But I uh, did an episode that was titled, An Organized Lie is More Powerful Than a Disorganized Truth. And I think that principle operates with particular force in times of uncertainty and and there is all kinds of its uncertainty. Some of it is legitimate. Some of it is ginned up by a compliant sports media that's doing the bidding for the Power Five interests because they are up to their eyeballs in financial conflicts of interest with the Power Five. And I have seen that from many of the go-to in-system media outlets that are trying to convince the world that this nil market is killing college sports. And I'm going to talk about that in separate episodes episodes, but I'm going to use some recent articles that have come out, recent meaning within the last year, on name, image, and likeness, and really break them down to show just how manipulative they are. They're seemingly neutral articles, but boy, are they packing some powerful narratives that are hostile to this new and less regulated nil market and play right into the hands of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries as they are trying to resurrect reasons to to use nil as a theme in their re-engagement with Congress. So I think what I'm going to do uh, from an organizational standpoint uh, for the rest of this episode, I'm going to start talking about sports betting and what that 
tells us about the value system. Then I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in this transformation committee and tie that in uh, to a third issue, and that is the lobbying that's going on behind the scenes and the tension between how the transformation committee is externalizing its message and then what it's doing behind the scenes in Congress. And then I want to follow up with this Marist poll and then uh, just a discussion of what all this means. But before I get to that list, I just want to make a couple of observations really in the nature of a cleanup from my last episode on Mark Emmert's departure and what I think it means. And I had some people who pay attention to what I'm doing suggest that I was making the case for leadership in the NCAA that will enable it to accomplish its goals. And I think that misinterprets what I was doing. My analysis assumed that I was looking at it from the NCAA and Power 5's perspective. So if I'm sitting in the NCAA Power 5 seat, who do I want? That's kind of how I view it. And I also want to emphasize that whoever's chosen is going to have to play the same role as a propagandist. That's the NCAA president's primary role right now. And my, my statement that why do we even need an NCAA president is not to suggest that the NCAA president doesn't have important authorities. He or she does. And I talked about that in that episode on Mark Emmert as the uh, master dissembler. And the fact that the NCAA president, even in this post-constitution world, still has the authority to sell and make money from all the NCAA intellectual property. That is a very powerful authority. And at least on paper, still has the authority to hire the NCAA's outside experts like lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people. That is still an important authority. But for the most part, the NCAA president, in terms of its practical purpose now going forward is going to be as propagandist. And that's why if you're sitting in the NCAA Power 5 chair, you want somebody with some political chops, some credibility, who can do what you need to get done in Congress. All right. So now let's turn to this sports betting issue. And I just want to point out, I've done two episodes directly on that. One was episode 106, uh, where I just talked generally about the NCAA's U-turn on sports betting. And then I did an episode not too long ago, episode 112, which is titled, Is the Mid-American Conference Sports Betting Deal a Trojan Horse for Power 5? Mega deals. No sooner had I pressed publish on that episode than we get this announcement, not from the NCAA. This came through the media. The NCAA didn't put this on their website. There was virtually zero media coverage. There was only one article in Sportico the next day, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But this was, I believe, one of the most consequential decisions in the history of the modern NCAA, because the NCAA announced on Wednesday, just as I predicted in that last episode on sports betting, that the Mid-American Conferences, the MAC Conferences deal with genius sports, which permits the MAC to sell information to a sports betting company in the sports betting space was okay under NCAA rules. And because of the absence of coverage, we really don't know what the hell happened here or what the rationale was. The only article that I could find was by Eben Novi Williams at Sportico. And I talked about him and an article that he wrote in episode 112. And I made the case that this whole Mac deal was really nothing more than a Trojan horse to lay the groundwork for the Power Five to come in and do mega deals that could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars per conference, particularly the Big Ten and the SEC. There is no telling what their deals are going to look like with outfits like 
Genius Sports. It may be Genius Sports, could be Sports Radar. Who knows who they're going to do business with? But this data, this information, this statistical information, we don't even know what, what's covered by these deals because the deals aren't public and nobody's talking honestly about what's in them. We get these cryptic references and we get these off-the-record sources that describe these deals or certain aspects of them, but we don't know what's in them. We have no idea. We have to take at face value, this very cryptic information that comes out, and then we have to search high and low to try to make sense of it because the in-system media outlets, the ESPNs of the world and the Sports Illustrators of the world and the mainstream media that try to cover sports issues like this. I haven't read anything in any of those outlets about the consequence of this decision. Maybe it's out there. But what this Sportico article says is that the NCAA's Committee on Interpretations, and that's a 10-member committee comprised largely of football interests. You have FBS representatives, including the Assistant Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. You've got a Big 12 rep, a Big 10 rep, a Pac-12 rep. The ACC is the only Power 5 conference conference not represented on that committee. But that committee apparently met and they came up with an interpretation that simply makes no freaking sense at all. I almost slipped there. I was going to have to check that that adult content box that I have to check every time I publish. Boy, I've been pressed right to that button with some of the garbage that's been coming out of the NCAA now in a compliant sports media. But Novi Williams at least acknowledged the fact that this occurred. And without this article, I don't think we would ever know what the hell happened with this uh, interpretation. Because remember, the MAC filed a, an interpretive request back probably in January. It's Novi Williams says earlier in the year, we don't really know when that was, they announced this MAC deal in March, just before the March Madness tournament. And this deal is in direct conflict with NCAA bylaw 10.3, which is a zero tolerance policy that prevents any person or entity or conference or institution under the NCAA's jurisdiction from having anything to do with anyone in the sports gambling space, including the provision of information to any person or entity or any association with any person or entity entity that is in the sports gambling industry. It could not be clearer, yet there is this claimed ambiguity. And I talked about that in episode 112, but in this article that came out last Thursday, Novi Williams apparently has a source, somebody, an NCAA spokesperson. He doesn't say who it is. He also references a memo, and it's very cryptic, but I take from that that there is a written work product that supports the rationale of this interpretation committee. And what came from from that, and let me just read this from Novi Williams' article. He says, the Division I Interpretations Committee met Wednesday to discuss the, the sports betting topic and determined that an individual school or conference can provide stats to sports wagering companies if that information is also available to the general public, according to an NCAA spokesperson. Membership was informed of the ruling Thursday afternoon. That's important. Membership was informed, but not in the general public, at least not through the NCAA's website. He goes on to say, the decision will likely open the door for conferences large and small and maybe individual schools themselves to capitalize directly on the rush of money being spent by betting operators and data middlemen as more states legalize gambling on pro and college games. 
So we now know that the NCAA and the Power Five have crossed that Rubicon from their steadfast opposition to any involvement in the sports gambling industry into an outright and open embrace of it. Where was ESPN? ESPN had nothing to say. You would think, given the importance of this decision and the potential consequences to the overall business model, that this would be breaking news at ESPN. But it wasn't. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that ESPN is up to its eyeballs in sports betting. They have links that are devoted exclusively to sports betting. The Daily Wager, I think, is the name of it. And it's everywhere. It's all, it's all over ESPN's products. But ESPN has not yet entered into a formal contract, a partnership with uh, sports betting enterprises. But there were talks about a year ago that ESPN was in negotiations with some of these big sports betting conglomerates for a deal that was worth up to $3 billion. But some kind of deal like that is only a question of when, not if. It's coming. And ESPN is in head first with the uh, sports gambling train. And so is Sports Illustrated. You go to Sports Illustrated's uh, website and there's betting everywhere. It's just covered up with it. So where are all the reporters for both of those organizations standing up and saying, wait a minute, this is one hell of a U-turn here. And we haven't had a values discussion. We've been talking about the sports betting issue through a values-based lens for decades now. And all of a sudden, uh, we've just swallowed our keyboards, and now it's, well, gosh, it's coming. It's inevitable. That's the phrase you hear. It's inevitable. So let's just jump on board. But, but I want to talk a, a minute about this justification that the NCAA has offered. And again, this is very cryptic. It came from an anonymous spokesperson, and apparently there's a, a written document that discusses the rationale, but we don't see it, and the NCAA isn't making it public. So we can only go on the limited information that's been provided so far. And it sounds like Novi Williams has uh, some sources. I don't know what his relationship is with the NCAA, but this suggestion that because the information is publicly available, then it doesn't pose any threat to the integrity arguments that the NCAA has been making for decades. That's the suggestion here. Look, this is publicly available information. And so long as it's available to the public, what's the harm? How could there possibly be any harm in that? And I just, I don't know that I can express with words in the English language just how dishonest that suggestion is. First of all, we have no idea what information is covered in these contracts, so we don't know whether it's publicly available or not. But beyond that, if this information is public and it's innocuous because it's public and it's okay because it doesn't really promote any of the interests of the gambling industry, then what the hell is the purpose of the contracts? What is the purpose of entering into an exclusive contract with Genius Sports to provide information that will ultimately be used in sports betting if the information has no value because it is freely available to the public? And that just flies in the face with the very existence of these deals. And we still don't know how much Genius Sports paid the MAC conference. But if Novi Williams is correct, the Big Ten and the SEC could be doing deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So obviously these deals do have value, enormous value. And the institutions that claim to have ownership 
of this quote unquote information, this data, the statistics and other information that is not available to the public, potentially including biometric information on the players. All of that information slash data is viewed by the purported owners, like the conferences, like the schools, like the NCAA, as proprietary information, which is why Genius Sports and Sports Radar want exclusive deals. What do they get from that? They get exclusive access to this very valuable and non-public information. And they also get reliable, trustworthy, credible information from the original source. And this notion about the publicly available data, that goes back to what I talked about in that episode on the NCAA's U-turn on sports betting. I talked about that lawsuit that the NBA filed against Motorola. I think it was in 1997. And Motorola was taking information from NBA broadcasts, and they were transmitting it in real time through Motorola pagers to sports betting interests and people working sports books. And the NBA came in and said, wait a minute, you can't do that. We own that data and it's ours. And only we can distribute that data and sell that data or do nothing with that data. And the, I believe it was the second circuit. I can't remember if it was the second or third circuit, but a federal circuit court said to the NCAA, you really have no a proprietary right in, in that data. You have an intellectual property interest in the broadcast itself, but you don't have any intellectual property rights in the underlying data, like the player stats and, and that kind of thing. I'm suggesting that kind of data was in the public domain, but, but that issue really isn't resolved. And there are legitimate questions about the ownership of that, of that data. And then these uh, sports data acquisition companies in the gambling space started popping up and they've proliferated after that Supreme Court decision in 2018. And rather than fight with the quote unquote owners of that data, they're creating a win-win situation where they purchase that data in an exclusive arrangement. They want it to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be, but I think that's where the market is heading. And then they have have uh, direct access without having to cull through broadcasts and come up with some alternative way to take this quote-unquote public information and put it into a form that they can sell to sports books and make money from. So they get this data from the original quote-unquote owner, and that's an open question in my judgment as to who actually owns this and what the athletes' rights are. But if you can get a contract with the Big Ten and they sell all their statistical data and other data, again, we don't know what that encompasses, but they sell that directly to a genius sports and there's an exclusive arrangement, that is a win-win. And Genius Sports can make a boatload of money reselling that information to sports books and casinos. And the uh, conference can make a boatload of money by having this exclusive arrangement. And if this is just information that's freely available in the public domain, why don't the Big Ten and the SEC and the NCAA just take all that public information and just publish it on the conference website for everybody? Why don't they do that? Because that information has enormous market value to the gambling industry and they are selling it to the highest bidder or they will be. So this argument that, oh, this is public information, so gosh, it must be okay, is just BS. And then the other aspect of the NCAA's position on this and the way that it was described in the Sportico article is it doesn't answer the question under NCAA rules. The question under bylaw 10.3 isn't whether the information is public or private, but whether it is information that is being 
provided in any way, shape, or form to any person or entity in the gambling space or associated with anyone in the gambling space, then that is a clear violation of the bylaw. The public versus private information is really irrelevant. It is the fact that that information is being provided to a third party. And what matters is who that third party is. And if that third party is in the gambling space, it is a direct violation of bylaw 10.3. And this pretzel logic that is being suggested through the characterization of these deals just doesn't have anything really to do with whether or not it violates Section 10.3. And maybe they discussed this in the memo. Maybe there's some intelligent explanation here, but we don't have that. Why not? We should, because this is really important stuff. And that information is largely athlete information. It is specific to individual athletes and I think it's important to at least ask the question whether the athletes have a right to know what the institutions and conferences and associations are selling to third parties for perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars. Shouldn't they know that? I think they should. And you know, that brings us right back to this values dissonance. So why isn't there a discussion through a values-based lens about what's happening right now in the normalization of relationships between college sports representatives and the gambling industry? Where's that discussion? And uh, this process of values normalization and just shifting on a dime to have your values match your selfish interests is really fascinating to me. And I'll be talking more about it in this sports betting context. And there were some uh, interesting discussions that occurred in 2020 that I believe if you pay close attention to, you can see that normalization process playing out. And there was one that was done through this Lead One Association in an hour-long kind of webinar, and they had some sports gambling people on. And it, that was just really <laughs> interesting to me. But Heather Likes, the AD at Pitt, who had testified in Congress just a couple months before that Lead One forum, and in, in that congressional testimony, she was saying sports betting's bad news, period, at the values level. She was speaking the values language on sports betting, the very language that the NCAA had been speaking since the 1950s and then had suddenly abandoned with its deal with Genius Sports in 2018. And Likes was still speaking that language. But as I mentioned in my last episode on sports betting, where is Heather Likes? Where are the voices like hers that I believe genuinely think this is a bad thing? You know, where are the university presidents? We haven't heard boo from a single Power Five university president saying, look, this is a values shift that we simply can't defend. Uh, and when I talk more about this, I'm going to identify for you what I think the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are going to say at the values level, if ever forced to. And so far, this whole issue has just been met with silence. And it goes back to that form of propaganda, propaganda by omission, what you don't talk about, what you refuse to talk about, what you refuse to acknowledge. And when you have the most powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the most powerful media outlets in sports journalism in the world denying that this is happening and refusing to cover it, then it simply doesn't exist. And there's a whole army of people in this country who believe that if ESPN or Sports Illustrated doesn't talk about it, then it's not a legitimate issue. And if they do talk about it, whatever they say about it is the only way to think about it. And that's a great position to be in if you're ESPN or Sports Illustrated.
It's just, this is not healthy. And this goes beyond the sports issues. This is a dynamic in American discourse and American media and the state of the First Amendment in, in 2022. But that's another podcast, I guess. So let me just talk about this transformation committee now and what it looks like they're talking about. And we can only talk about this with very broad strokes and, and categorically because there isn't much detail here. And there are a few interesting nuggets. And I'll do episodes on this when I get back in earnest to really looking at this transformation committee's purpose, its work, and, and where I think it's going to land in August. So I'm just going to get the high points here to tie into the, the values issue. So the transformation committee has been meeting weekly. It was formed in October of 2021. This is before the vote on the Constitution, and it was put together ostensibly in anticipation of the work that would need to be done on the backside of the Constitution if it, if it were ratified, and it was ratified, and the divisions have more power now, and all that. I've talked all about that stuff, but it really began its work in earnest in February, and it's been meeting weekly, and it has published uh, very skeletal minutes of the meetings on the NCAA website on a link from the Transformation Committee. And I have read everything that has been published so far. So I've got these weekly reports and I've gone through and synthesized the issues as I see it. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to be talking about this in much more detail at some point when I focus on the work of the Transformation Committee. And remember, that was on my list of things to do at, at the beginning of the year, particularly after the new constitution was ratified on January 20th. But what I see here are some broad themes that really aren't that different from what was discussed leading up to the vote on the Constitution and through the work of this Constitution Committee, which was formed, I believe, uh, on August 10th of 2021. Bob Gates announced his involvement on July 30th of 2021. And now we have this committee really being responsible in large measure for the future of big time college sports. And this is a Power Five show. I've talked all about that. I've done episodes on the constitutional process and including what this transformation committee was supposed to look like and how this is really a Power Five show. And again, that episode 97 on Power Five Autonomy 2.0, I think gives a good roadmap for, or a good blueprint for, for what this transformation committee is going to do. And remember, that autonomy movement in 2013-2014 was influenced in substantial measure by Greg Sankey, who was then the Associate Athletics Director of the SEC under Michael Slive. And he was viewed as the brains behind that autonomy legislation. And, and he and uh, Jim Delaney, who was the commissioner of the Big Ten, were viewed as the movers and shakers behind that movement. So I've always viewed this as Greg Sankey putting the, the finishing touches on what they tried to do in 2013, 2014. They got most of what they wanted, but they didn't get the infractions part. And they didn't get a complete decoupling from the NCAA on the approach to compensation limits. They have all of that now. And, you know, whatever they put together is going to shape, at least at the voluntary regulatory level, what college sports looks like going forward. So they land in three main areas. And one is infractions. And that's the one that 
Sankey and Julie Cromer have emphasized in their limited public comments about what's going on in the Transformation Committee. And under the new constitution and this devolution down of authorities to the divisions, Division One can put together its own infractions and enforcement process. They wanted that in 2013, but didn't get that component of the autonomy legislation. And remember, autonomy applies only to the Power Five schools. And this Transformation Committee is a Power Five power play. It is a majority Power Five membership there. The second thing that they're talking about are the transfer rules. And I think they've acknowledged that they needed to support the one-time transfer rule, but there's some discussions about trying to put some limits around that and windows around that. And I don't know if that's going to be controversial or not. I think the important thing is that these athletes have the opportunity to transfer. And I think a lot of people, myself included, are not crazy about the volatility in the labor force. I like to see stable rosters, but that's my old school thinking. I like to have relationships with the athletes and the teams and see them develop. And that's becoming less common as these kids are moving, but I think they absolutely have the right to move. And nobody's talking about how many and how often we have coaches moving. The, the coaching carousel is at least as active as the transfer market, I think. Then a third and important category is what do you do with the rule book? And they formed a subcommittee that was supposed to look at what do we keep? What do we emphasize? What can we just jettison? What can we throw overboard? And that a subcommittee's work is still in progress. And I think you're going to see, as is always the case, the emphasis on these rules is going to come down to the two things that are the most important to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. One is finding some way to enforce the compensation limits that don't threaten the business model. And then the second thing is how do you manage through rules, enforceable rules and regulations, the talent acquisition market and this insane, irrational battle to either gain a competitive advantage in recruiting or avoid losing competitive advantage in recruiting. And with the name, image, and likeness market and the transfer market, you have people who are all up in arms about that. But that that's the question. What stays, what goes, and with what stays, what does that look like? It's my belief that it's not going to look substantially different from what it looks like now. As a practical matter, I just don't see a rewrite of those kinds of rules between now and August, which is when the Transformation Committee says it's going to offer its recommendations. Then uh, this next category is important, and that is the student athlete benefits and support. That heading comes up in almost every meeting, and that really relates to you know, autonomy 2.0. So the very purpose of the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014 was to get ahead of the uncertainty in O'Bannon. And a lot of people thought that Judge Wilkin was going to blow the door on amateurism and the Power Five wanted to come in and offer something more than had been offered the revenue producing athletes before. And this, again, this applied only to the Power Five conferences, the autonomy movement, legislative autonomy. So they wanted to show to to, uh, Judge Wilkin and I think to the general public that the, at least the Power Five interest got the message and that the the status quo that existed in uh, college sports at that time simply wasn't fair. And they needed to show that they were going to try to treat these athletes uh, a little better. And and that's what they did. And the benefits weren't game-changing. They didn't alter the overarching ban on pay-for-play. But they gave the athletes a little bit more. And so when I see this transformation committee talking about uh, student-athlete benefits and support, I think they're looking at maybe a, a further enhancement 
of benefits for athletes that will serve in 2022, essentially the same purpose that it served in 2013, 2014. And that was trying to turn the heat down from external regulators who were coming in with uh, quote unquote radical proposals to change college sports. That's how the Power Five described the situation in 2013, 2014. And, and then those radical proposals involved the, you know, the Northwestern attempt to unionize in football. You had O'Bannon really threatening the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And you, you had some balls in the air there that really scared the hell out of the Power Five and, and to a lesser extent, the NCAA. So you have those same things now. And in this in these transformation committee documents, they keep talking about the post-Austin world, which is interesting. And it sounds a lot like the same kind of things they were talking about in 2013, 2014. Same approach, same overall philosophy. The circumstances are a little bit different because back in 2013, 2014, you had the threat of something like Austin, but you know, O'Bannon turned out to be as much a victory for the NCAA as the athletes. And the Northwestern threat went out, it petered out. The the National Labor Relations Board kind of cut it off at the knees and said they just didn't want to assert jurisdiction there. So they really avoided any meaningful changes in the marketplace that are were imposed by external regulatory threats. That's not true today. You have the no market that came into existence. You have the Austin suit. Now you have these administrative challenges, trying to get athletes recognized as statutory employees under federal law. You have this California revenue sharing bill. You have the National Accountability Act. You have all these other things that are out there. But I think the same basic approach is what can we give these athletes, what more can we give them than, than they have now that can make it look like we are genuinely moving into the 21st century and 21st century thinking without completely waving the white flag and say, let's just go with a, a free market system. And they're not going to do that. And, and that's why they're realigning themselves for this re-engagement with Congress that I'm going to talk a little bit more about when I talk about this Marist poll. But that's the thinking. And then let's see, I want to talk about a couple things that, that they don't talk about that simply don't exist in the work of this transformation committee. You don't have any meaningful discussion about name, image, and likeness. They have to be very careful about how they talk about that because that's something they have been promising. And they're going to go back and talk about how this unregulated market is out of control, but they can't really take on nil directly. And that ties into another omission. They don't say anything about their campaign in Congress. They don't talk about going back to Congress to solve all these issues. And if they go back to Congress, what are they going to be asking for? And I'm going to talk about that in just a section with these lobbying reports. And then there was nothing about values. This discussion really what didn't run through a values-based lens. This is a practical approach. Maybe that reflects Greg's Sankey's pr practicality could be. But I think it also reflects this values dissonance that has presented itself in 2021. And if you're the Power Five, you have to be careful about talking about the business model in terms of those values and amateurism, the student athlete and all that stuff. They do reference the collegiate sports model. And that is a buzz term from the new constitution, which is another way of expressing no pay for play. But it doesn't carry the baggage of amateurism, the student athlete and the old collegiate model. So I find all of that very interesting. So from a public positioning standpoint, 
they're trying to get some of these things done while preserving the basic components of the business model and not talking about it on a values level that takes them back to the very false values that got them in trouble and it led a unanimous Supreme Court to take a, a pretty strong swipe at amateurism. But by the same token, and this is so, so important, the NCAA and the Power Five are still paying their lobbyists a boatload of money to lobby behind the scenes to take this business model back to the 1950s. I did some updated research this morning on these lobbying reports. I've talked a little bit about it. I haven't done dedicated episodes to the lobbying effort, and that is also on my list of things to do because this is where you really see the true motivations of these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And so what I did was I pulled the most recent Senate lobbying disclosure reports for the first quarter of 2022. So let me just start with this NCAA lobbying report. They still have Brownstein Hyatt doing their work. This one was filed April 20th of 2022, just a week ago. And on this lobbying disclosure, they list all of the individual lobbyists. There are 11 lobbyists working diligently behind the scenes as we speak to promote the NCAA's agenda in Congress. And this this disclosure gives you a roadmap for what that campaign is. And what are they lobbying for? Let's see. They say issues related to athletic scholarships, health and safety, gender equity, academic success, the collegiate model, amateurism, and higher education. That's pretty broad right there. And uh, I'll just note those the, those 11 lobbyists or the firm, Brownstein Hyatt, got paid $90,000 in the first quarter of 2022. But they list, uh, as a lot of these disclosures do, the specific bills that they are either supporting or opposing. And there are three bills listed in this filing just from a week ago. The first is the Jerry Moran bill, Senate Bill 414, the Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021, which would end the athletes' rights movement. It has an absolute preemption provision that goes far beyond name, image, and likeness. It has a very broad antitrust immunity, and it has a very clear provision that says that athletes can't be employees for any purposes, and that would include federal and state law. It is just a complete takedown of the athletes' rights movement. And if the NCAA and Power Five got this bill or one substantially like it passed, they don't have to do a damn thing on athletes' benefits. This discussion is academic, pardon the pun. And then they list the College Athletes Economic Freedom Act. I think that was the Murphy Trahan bill, companion bills in the Senate and the House. It was a straight up name, image, and likeness bill that did interestingly have a preemption provision. I'm not quite sure how the NCAA is feeling about that now. And then the last one, of course, is the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act introduced by Anthony Gonzalez, who's no longer in uh, Congress, or he's not running for re-election. He's not a power player anymore. More. But that was a watered-down version, I think, of this Moran bill, and it came out of the House, and the NCAA held that up as the gold standard until the Moran bill came out, and they were pumping it up in their propaganda website. But this legislative campaign is going on at the same time that the Power Five is pumping all this propaganda for public relations purposes and through this transformation committee, that they're talking about moving the student-athlete benefits forwards. And then I also pulled up the lobbying reports for the Southeastern Conference because Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC. And the SEC has three different lobbying firms 
working for it right now. And I'll talk first about the, the smaller players. So they have this outfit, Marshall and Pop, and all the, the Power Five conferences have Marshall and Pop working for them. And the other Power Five conferences have lobbyists just like this. I'm, I'm just talking about the SEC because of its importance to Greg Sankey and the work of this transformation committee. But they did their first quarter 2022 filing on April 18th. So just a couple of weeks ago, they paid Marshall and Pop 10K, and they had two lobbyists. This is a two-person firm. And while it may be small, it is quite powerful. Uh, its principles have very impressive connections to the United States Senate. Hazen Marshall was the former policy director for Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, perhaps the leader of the pack among the Republicans in the Senate. That's a pretty nice connection to have. And then Monica Pop was chief of staff and deputy chief of staff for Senate Republican John Cornyn. Those are the kinds of connections, lobbying connections, that will be crucial as the Power Five seek to get a bill to move forward. Whatever it is, whatever that bill looks like post-midterm, McConnell is going to be crucial there. And let's see, what are they doing? They are lobbying on issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness, including... S-414, the Amateur Athletics Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. That's the Moran Bill. That's the train wreck bill. That's the bill that ends the athletes' rights movement. Then we have this other outfit. Let's see, lobbying firm number two. And this is Elmendorf Ryan. Let's see. They got paid ten grand in this first quarter, and this filing was made on April 20th, the same day the NCAA filed. Let's see. There are five lobbyists. Elmendorf Ryan, five lobbyists. What are they doing? Issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness. They don't reference a specific bill, but let's see. Then the last one, the heavy hitters, and this is Aiken Gump, and they're, they're a, a big-time law firm with a big-time lobbying presence. The SEC paid Aiken Gump $120,000 in the first quarter of 2022. They filed on April 19th of, of 2022, and they have five lobbyists. And let's see, what do they talk about? They say legislation regarding student athletes, including the College Athletes Bill of Rights. Th that is the Booker-Blumenthal bill. But they say S-414, that's the Moran bill. So they're supporting the Moran bill, that same bill that would end the athletes' rights movement. And then this S-238, I think that's the Murphy-Trahan bill, which is ostensibly pro-athlete because it gives you know, basic nil rights, but does have a preemption provision. So that is uh, going in for the kill with that Moran bill. And so the SEC, it looks like, has 13 total lobbyists, and they're being paid $140,000 for the first quarter of 2022. So what they're doing in the Senate campaign can't be reconciled with the, the face that they're trying to put on this transformation committee. And let's see, the NCAA is the 11 lobbyists. So that's a total of 24 lobbyists now, just between the SEC and the NCAA. It doesn't include the other Power Five conferences who are lobbying full-time 
full court press behind the scenes, around the clock, to get the Power Five and the NCAA the federal protections and immunities that will allow them to do whatever the hell they want to in the regulation of college sports and in a way where their financial interests cannot be challenged because federal courts would be gone through antitrust immunity, state legislatures would be gone through federal preemption, and athletes could not have any rights as employees, as statutory employees under federal or state law, game, set, match, boom. But you're not going to hear the SEC representatives or the NCAA representatives or anybody in the media, apparently, talking about it on those terms. And I think it's really interesting to point out that when you look at these lobbying disclosure forms, both in the general characterization of the work these firms are doing for the NCAA and the SEC, and then also in uh, specific reference to this Moran bill, which is titled the Amateur Athletes Compensation Act of 2021, these lobbyists have no problem using the word amateur, freely using the word amateur, because that word still has appeal in the United States Senate, because the movers and shakers in the Senate, particularly the Republican senators, they're going to be carrying the water for the NCAA and Power Five after the midterms. They love amateurism. In fact, just uh, maybe two months ago, Roger Wicker, who was an NCAA bagman prior to the flip in the Senate after the Georgia special elections, he issued a press release expressing his is deep concern for the direction of this unregulated nil market, and he specifically invoked amateurism. He proudly invoked amateurism because that's the language he speaks. So in these communications between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and then running through their lobbyists and to these senators, the, the amateurism theory and the amateurism justification is not only alive and well, it is the preferred value among these people. And who are these people? Well, you got uh, Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi. You got Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina. You had Lamar Alexander. Alexander, Republican from Tennessee. He's since retired. You have uh, Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas. Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida. You've got uh, Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas. And you have Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, and his colleague from Utah, Mike Lee, both uh, making comments that I believe are pretty aligned with everything the NCAA wants. And then you're going to have uh, Mitch McConnell coming in through Marshall and Pop if necessary. And these NCAA, and more importantly, Power Five bag men are all male. They are all very well off, and they are all over 60. I think all of them are, are well over 60 years old. That is the demographic that the NCAA and now more importantly, the Power Five are targeting. And it's a very powerful group of decision makers in the United States of America. And you're sure as hell not going to hear Greg Sankey or Julie Cromer talking about their initiatives in the Senate on those terms. And it would be real interesting if one of these intrepid reporters in the next interview with Greg Sankey pulled out the SEC's lobbying disclosures and used the word amateur as the lobbyists use it and talk about this Moran bill, which is an, an ode to amateurism by its very title. What would Sankey have to say? That would be real interesting. So now let's just turn to this Marist poll. The survey was pretty simple. It had some basic questions on paying athletes and then name, image, and likeness, and then sports wagering. And I just want to go through just a few of the 
results across demographics to to give some sense of the dilemma that the NCAA and Power Five are in going forward. So let me just talk a little bit about some of these numbers. And the survey had about 1,300 participants, and they divided them into kind of two pools. One were people who had self-identified as sports fans and then people who didn't. And so the non-sports fans were called national adults and the sports fans were treated separately in their responses. I'm going to use the national because I think that probably may more accurately align with what you would find in the Senate. And I'm looking at this through a political lens and what these numbers mean for the NCAA Power Pfizer engagement in the Senate post uh, midterms. So they asked a number of different questions. And on the sports betting questions, I'm not going to talk a lot about them. I don't think there were strong feelings one way or the other in terms of whether sports betting was appropriate or whether it would lead to more cheating and, and all that stuff. I think these numbers in this poll basically suggest that the normalization process isn't going to be a big deal. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of pushback from the public. And I think as there's been normalization post the Murphy decision in 2018, when the PASPA was struck down and you saw states getting into the sports betting space, you have now 30 states now. And I think that the feeling is that this is just part of what the new business model is going to look like, which is great for the Power Five and the NCAA, because I just don't see a constituency group that's going to get all lathered up about the normalization of sports betting. And uh, then the NCAA and Power Five can indulge whatever grand hypocrisies they choose to without any meaningful consequences. But that's part of the problem here in this values dilemma. They only view their values through the lens of what they can get away with and what those values are worth in in the marketplace. And they've just done a a U-turn on this fundamental value because they think they can get away with it. And I think these, these numbers may support that. But I want to go to this fundamental question about whether athletes should be paid. So we have three questions. The first one is, do you think college athletes should be paid? And then a follow-up question, if athletes receive salaries, should that apply to all athletes in all sports or only athletes in revenue-producing sports? And then uh, they ask a name, image, and likeness question, and I'm going to look at those numbers too, because there was enough of a disparity there that suggests that there may not be as much support for name, image, and likeness compensation in the Senate as may appear to be. So on this first question, do you think college athletes should be paid? Should colleges pay college athletes? Direct payment from the universities to the athletes. And when you look at the the numbers based on age, they're really interesting. So they use an age category of 18 to 40, which they say includes the Gen Z and the millennials. 67% of those people said yes. And then the Gen Xers, 41 to 56, were at 42% yes. And then we have the baby boomers, which they define as between the ages of 57 and 75. Only 30% of baby boomers think colleges should pay their athletes. That is less than half of the Gen Z millennials, that 18 to 40-year-old demographic. That is a huge, huge difference. And then we move up to what they call the silent greatest generation, over 75. And they were slightly below baby boomers, but in the same ballpark. And then when we look at that by gender, you had men saying, yes, athletes should be paid at 54%. Women only at 30 
0.9%. And I think that's important because I think you're going to see the NCAA and Power Five targeting female senators on the Commerce Committee, and they aren't all in with this pay the athletes thing. Now let's look at it by race. Only 34% of white respondents said, yes, pay the athletes. 70% of black respondents said, yes, pay the athletes. And Latino respondents were up around 70% as well. And, and that was interesting. But that's a massive, massive difference in opinion. And it, it suggests to me that people of color view this as a civil rights issue. And I think that race-based civil rights issue has been really minimized in the Power Five and NCAA engagement with Congress and through their lobbyists. And they have just downplayed those issues or outright ignored them and instead focused on gender equity as a civil rights issue. And that plays into the sentiments of female senators. And then when you fold in political affiliation, you see that 53% of Democrats say, yes, colleges should pay their athletes, but only 28% of Republicans. And that's very interesting. Again, that speaks to the importance of a Republican-controlled Congress. So on that basic question of whether athletes should be paid, and that's really the ultimate litmus test for how people really think about the relationship between the athletes and the interests that benefit from their labor. And the demographics in the Senate are very Power 5 NCAA friendly. And I think it's also important that the NCAA and Power 5 began their engagement in a Republican-controlled Senate, not in a Democrat-controlled House. And that that's interesting because bills originate in the House and then they go to the Senate. The NCAA went to its friendly audience. And it's also important to point out that the demographic of the individuals in the in-system stakeholder beneficiary side the university presidents, the athletics directors, the head coaches in football and men's basketball, executives in the NCAA National Office Administrative State, and then the executives in the sports entertainment industry match quite closely the demographics of the United States Senate. And I think you're going to see this re-engagement post-midterm, assuming that the Republicans regain control of the Senate, and that seems to be where this is headed. You're going to see that re-engagement with the Senate, not with the House. And then there's this follow-up question. It says, if college athletes receive salaries, should that apply to one, athletes in all sports, or two, athletes only in sports that bring in significant revenue. So it's all athletes versus revenue producing only. And there you see some very interesting numbers because you see that the the younger generations who believe by 70% that athletes should be paid, they believe by an even higher number that the money should be spread around, that it shouldn't just go to the revenue-producing athletes. And that's really interesting as well, because that also plays into the NCAA Power 5 strategy right now on the 
equity arguments that it's making. It's saying, okay, look, if any money's going to move here, this has to benefit all athletes, not just the football and men's basketball players. And that is a, a really interesting conflation of interests that is a problem for athletes' rights advocates who are like me, who are making the argument that part of the injustice in this system is the spreading around of the wealth and this belief that African-American laborers have to work on behalf of downstream white beneficiaries. And I I think there's a disconnect there that's in large part the product of how poorly these issues have been framed and explained to important decision makers, namely United States senators. And then I want to talk just briefly about the numbers on name, image, and likeness. And I think that's important in the political context because this debate in Congress originated around the name, image, and likeness argument. And although the NCAA and Power Five's arguments during their re-engagement with Congress are much weaker on nil because the nil market it exists and college sports didn't come to a fatal collapse as they all predicted. I think some basic underlying feelings about name, image, and likeness are, are important and there are some disparities here. So when you look at uh, the, the question of, here, here's how it's phrased, do you think college athletes should or should not be paid when their name, image, or likeness is used in video games or to sell merchandise? So it's basically a name, image, and likeness question. And uh, based on age, let's see, 90 percent of the younger generations, Gen Z, millennial, 18 to 40, say yes. Then Gen X, 41 to 56 years old, uh, 76 percent. Then baby boomers, 57 to 75, only 62 percent. And then 44 percent with those over 75. Those are huge differences there. It suggests some pushback, even among baby boomers, on this whole nil thing. And then when you look at it by race, you see similar disparities. You have a total of 66 percent of white respondents saying yes to nil, 87 percent of black respondents. A huge difference there. And so I think there's some pushback there that could be beneficial to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And then let's see, on political affiliation, you had another what I think is a meaningful discrepancy here. So the Democrat respondents, 81% said yes to nil payments, but that number drops to 60% for Republicans. So I think those numbers speaks to the, this values divide that's driven in, in many ways by age, but also by gender on this core question of whether athletes should be paid. And then you have a big difference in terms of political affiliation. And of course, when it comes to race, you have white respondents on the one hand and then black and Latino respondents on the other. Being on different planets, there is just a massive gap between those two demographics. And the people of color see this in a fundamentally different way than white people do. When you, at the broad brush level, combine all that demographic data, I think you see two trends. One is that the NCAA and Power Five have a much better chance of, of protective federal legislation in Congress than people might think. And so they're having to play two, two sides of a coin here. So externally, they want to try to appeal to the younger generation. That's, that's going to be the lifeblood of fan engagement and ultimately their consumer base and their fan base and their ability to continue making money. So they have to play to that. And they try to do that through their propaganda and all these edgy kind of campaigns to make it look like they're appealing to younger 
consumers. But by the same token, behind the scenes in their campaign to the Senate, they're going right to the old school white male 60-ish plus decision makers who see the, the world the way that the NCAA and Power 5 want them to see it to preserve and protect their regulatory model. So you have these two fundamentally different values being expressed for fundamentally different purposes that the dissonance between those two value systems is so extreme right now that you see this pretty clear struggle on the part of the Transformation Committee and the NCAA Power 5 loyalists to speak in terms of values. And I think that kind of comes through in the work of this Transformation Committee. So with that, I think I'm going to close this thing out. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do in my next episode. Again, there's so much stuff going on, so many directions to go and so much material to cover. I'll have to, to think about it and then gear up for, for the next episode. But I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.